If you have your Bibles, please open them to Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of the ones in front of you. Same, same story every week. Uh, the red, red ones are King James Version, if that is the version you prefer. And uh, the page you're looking for is page 1000. The blue Bibles are ESV, and that's a more modern translation. And the page you're looking for is page 475. We, as a people, have a tendency to extremes. On the one hand, we may obsess over the newest things, the newest technology or music, the newest clothes or cars, the newest trends in how to run a business or how to lose weight or how to find love. For those with an obsession with newness, it doesn't stop at the church doors. We want to try the newest fads to try to grow the church and try to maybe become a purpose-driven church or uh, can't stop looking at data for what, it, uh, what the churches around are doing and how we could possibly grow looking at all of these things, the, these new ideas, these new methods, all of these things. We do it in missions where we try to bring in new methodology in order to try to reach the lost. We search the Christian charts to find the newest and most popular songs. We find the old to be outdated and unworthy to be part of a cutting-edge ministry. Old things threaten our plans for growth, so we try to remove them from our way. On the other hand, we may obsess over the old instead of the new. The ways that we grew up doing things, the way that we've always done things as far as we can tell, the new is just a passing fad, and we should ignore it and stick to the good old tried and true ways. New things threaten to remove some things that we've grown to love and cherish. It's possible that the obsession over the old is connecting with history, like deep, deep history. But often, and especially when the obsession is uh, with a recently past era, not one that's far away, like thousands of years or even hundreds of years, this connection to history is about what we're comfortable doing, this desire for the old. So which view is right? What is the right way to go about building and continuing a church? Most importantly, how should we think about this as Christians? How does Jesus speak to this? Now, we already know in Matthew 5 that Jesus speaks about not coming to destroy the old law, right? He comes to fulfill it, not to destroy it. So maybe Jesus is saying that holding on to the old and not destroying, uh, not destroying it to fit the new, right? Like maybe we could say that if we tried to argue that. But in this morning's passage, in uh, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 14, Jesus talks about the new that he is bringing with him and how it changes everything. Last week, we saw Jesus acting out this kingdom reality, this reality of this new kingdom that he is bringing in. And there are some changes coming especially in the way that the despised and the rejected are being treated. They are offered the hope of the gospel. Now we see in this uh, passage this morning that this new kingdom and how it is going to interact with the traditions that were accompanied by demands to the old ways. Let's read the passage and learn what Jesus has to say. This is Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, starting in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, 
Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So what's really interesting about this passage to note is that uh, in the other synoptic gospels, the other gospels, Mark and Luke, that tell virtually the same exact story as Matthew, um, they tell it a little bit differently. In Luke, he talks about the Pharisees asking him this immediately after asking why he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. In another one, it just says the people of the crowd ask him. But in Matthew, he says that the disciples of John, this would be John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, are coming to him and asking him, why don't you fast like we do and like the Pharisees do? Why are you doing things differently? Why are you and your disciples not doing it? And John, this is not some Pharisee who's coming before him, right? If we remember John the Baptist, he is the last Old Testament prophet. He is the one who's prophesied in Isaiah as the forerunner to the Messiah, the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the paths of the Lord, prepare your way for him. John is the first one, the first human who recognized who Jesus was. Because it's said that when uh, Mary was pregnant, she went to her cousin Elizabeth, and she also was pregnant. The baby inside Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy because he knew he was in the presence of Jesus. It's his disciples who are coming to Jesus and asking this question, not the Pharisees. And they asked him, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Now, fasting was a key religious practice that was often associated with grief and mourning, often over sin, but also had some connotations about this purification through suffering. There is this idea, um, really, within religion in general, and we see it in Job, we see it even in Isaiah, to where there's this idea of a purification because of righteous suffering. And so... Um, fasting was a part of that as well. In fact, you see in the Old Testament that Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, was a day to fast because it was the day of being cleansed of your sin before God. In Leviticus 16.30, it says, on this, day of, on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And so this idea of fasting is about mourning and grieving, but it's also about purification. And we'll see that the disciples of John and the Pharisees are leaning a little bit more into the purification, even though Jesus will talk about it a little differently. There were weekly instituted fasts that are not in the Old Testament. These are later laws that were made. In, and they were generally on Mondays and Thursdays. And they were from sunrise to sunset. They were not instituted by God. They're not in the Old Testament. They're not in Leviticus, but rather they are... Uh, this purification throughout the week, um, this idea to be able to do it. This was invented by men who were seeking more ritual purity. There are some devout Jews who still do this to this day. They fast all day on Monday and Thursday. 
And it's likely what John's disciples were asking about, this weekly fasting. Why are we fasting and your disciples aren't? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Last week, we saw how Jesus feasted with his disciples and with sinners, right? We saw that he was celebrating the fact that the kingdom was being opened to sinners. And now, this week, Jesus and his disciples don't fast again. They, they feast. And why? Because of their joy of the kingdom coming. What party is complete without food, right? What groom wants his wedding day to be full of fasting? No one, right? What wedding guest wants the day to be full of fasting, right? We complain when the wedding is going kind of long. It's like, when are we getting to the reception and the dinner, right? This happens. And so Jesus is pulling into this idea. But it goes even deeper than that. Because in ancient Judaism, the wedding feast was a week-long event. And in the laws, the rabbinical laws that they had made of when you had to fast on Mondays and Thursdays, they put in the stipulation that if you're at a wedding, you're exempt from this. You don't have to fast because you shouldn't fast. The feasts lasted the whole week because weddings were a time of intense joy with an abundance of food and drink. So not even the Pharisees would fast on those normal fasting days while they were in the presence of the bridegroom. That would be so inappropriate. But this analogy goes even further when we read the entire Bible because in Revelation 19, John is given the vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the Lamb who is Jesus has uh, the wedding supper where he comes to his bride and he is united to her. In Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. How incredible! This feast at the end of the world, when all the world ends, blessed are those who are invited to that feast. But who is this bride that Jesus is uniting himself with? Paul tells us in Ephesians that it's the church, it's Christians who are being united to Christ. Those who have been called out of their sin and into the people of Christ are his bride. We, who are part of this bride, are invited to this great marriage supper. So then, does this mean that Jesus is removing fasting from spiritual disciplines? Right? Like, we've heard of fasting, right? Everyone has? Does everyone understand what fasting is? Basically, in its truest sense, is you refrain from eating and uh, you fast for a time. Is Jesus saying we don't need to fast at all? Is Jesus saying this should be completely removed and it's not necessary because the, the bridegroom has come? But we know in Matthew chapter 6 that Jesus tells his disciples to fast privately. He commands them 
to fast privately and not in a public manner to show others how holy they are. So Jesus isn't completely removing this fasting. He's not saying that this has no place. But he makes clear what he says in the following verse. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Well now, if you've been following along in Matthew, Jesus hasn't said anything like this about being taken away, about his death coming. This this probably induced some anxiety in his followers listening. Wait a second, what is he talking about being taken away? This word taken in the Greek refers to this violent and unwelcome removal. This is the first time Jesus has said anything like that in Matthew. And he's talking about his death. He knew it was coming. And when the bridegroom is taken from the presence, their presence, then that will be the time for fasting because that's the time for mourning. In fact, fasting ended up becoming normative and instructed to do in the early Christian church in a book called the Didache. This is one of the earliest books we have outside of the Bible that talks about how the people in the church are supposed to act. It is the earliest book we have about this. And in it, uh, the Didache means the teaching. And that's, it's just the teaching and sent to churches to show them how to live this out. Um, in the Didache, Christians are told to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays to differentiate themselves from the Jews who are fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. They're told that they should do this every week, that this is a right and good thing to do. It also speaks of fasting before baptism and it, uh, other events of importance as well, like fasting before all these different things. Jesus and the inauguration of his kingdom that came when he came to earth did not mean that all pain and mourning would be removed forever. Not at that point. It does mean, it did not mean that mourning is never going to happen. It did not mean that sin was going to forever be eradicated from the time of his birth onward. Because Jesus, the son of the king, ended up being killed. But praise be to God that he didn't stay dead. He rose to life and is alive today. But this bridegroom, he's no longer in our presence like he was with the disciples. He has risen to heaven and he intercedes for us on the right hand, at the right hand of God. What a great friend and king that we have, but we're not yet in the final promised kingdom. Revelation continues and gives us the picture of the final kingdom where heaven and earth will be united uh, and it will be unified just like we will be truly unified to Christ in the marriage supper of the Lamb. It says that God himself is going to dwell among us and be our God. And it says that he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and that all sin, evil, and death will be destroyed forever. But we don't yet live in that day. Because until that day, our bridegroom isn't with us. He's in heaven. Sin still abounds. Death still takes each of us. So it is a good and right thing to mourn and to long for the coming of Christ through fasting. And we'll talk more on fasting in the coming weeks, but for now we're going to leave it there. Jesus continues by giving a couple of descriptive uh, examples to explain how the new and the old compare with each other. And he starts with an example that tailors would understand, not not the tailors of our church, and last name, but tailors who sew 
and uh, fixed clothing. He starts by saying, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and then a worse tear is made. Unshrunk cloth is basically new cloth. If you've ever patched some clothes, uh, putting a new piece of cloth on top of old clothing where there's a rip, that's not a good idea uh, unless it's already pre-shrunk uh, clothing that we have now. Because what ends up happening is once it's been washed or seasoned in a sense, that uh, those fibers constrict together and they pull away. And what they end up doing, that sewing that you did, it holds on to that rip that has already been made. And as that pulls away, it tears that worse. So Jesus is saying, if you mix that new thing with the old thing, it's going to make it worse, not better. He then gives an example that brewers would understand. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. The way that you make wine or beer is by taking sugars from grapes or grains, and then you put it in a water solution, and then you add yeast to that. The yeast then will eat the sugars, and then they basically burp out alcohol and CO2, carbon dioxide. And this yeast will keep eating the sugars and creating alcohol and carbon dioxide until it's stopped by being placed in an environment that the yeast cannot continue in. Now, in modern days, a lot of the times what they do is they'll just put it in the fridge, and that coldness stops the yeast from being able to complete, uh, continue making alcohol and CO2. But in the old times, they didn't have that option in the ancient times. And so what ends up happening is in these skins, they needed the ability for them to stretch because as the CO2 is being made, you need the ability for the skins to be able to stretch to accommodate for this air that's being pushed out. If you use old wine skins, because it's literally skin, they probably use the skin of a donkey or a camel and it was used to transport. But if you use the old wine skins, they became brittle. And so as this air was pushing out on the skin, they would just burst and then you would lose all the wine and the wine skin. And it's all ruined. The new and the old are ruined. And so you needed those new skins that had the ability to stretch and uh, be stretched out by the pressure from the inside. Both of these examples, the tailor with the patch and the, the brewer with the wine, they're pointing to something really important. The old ways of Judaism will not mix with the new kingdom of Christ. If you try to mix them, you're going to destroy both of them. Gospel and law are brought together only through Jesus. Jesus has not come to combine Judaism with Christianity. New forms were needed. The Old Testament was not destroyed, but it was fulfilled. And this requires the teachings, the Torah, which would be the first five books of the Old Testament, but instead now we have the Torah of the Messiah. The teachings of Jesus is the new Torah. It's a new set of ethical norms and gospel practices that Jesus sets forth. The early church did not realize the fullness of what Jesus meant and considered themselves to be the new messianic sect of Judaism. And it wasn't until the Apostle Paul came with the mission to the Gentiles that they began to understand this important truth that a new thing was happening and the old ways could not contain it. All through the book of Acts, we have these fights going on between the Jews who were putting their trust in Jesus and the new Gentile Christians. 
We had so many fights going on. We have the Council of Jerusalem was decided to see, hey, do these new Gentile Christians need to follow all the laws of the Torah? We see that happening all throughout Paul's travels. He talks about the Judaizers, which are those who are saying you have to become a Jew in order to truly be a Christian. They say, no, you don't have to. Jesus has changed that. He has made the way for everyone. There are new ways being brought in. And the old ways cannot contain this. This new kingdom reality that Jesus has begun in his ministry really has important implications for us today. And there's a couple of issues I want to explore. Number one, we live in a time of joy, but also a time of mourning. There's something that um, a lot of theologians call the already not yet reality of living as a Christian. We are already saved from sin, and yet we're not yet fully, uh, that's not fully realized. The sin's not yet fully been removed from us. We are already living in Jesus' kingdom, and yet it has not yet been fully realized. And so we have a great joy because of Christ. We can face things, historically Christians have faced things that other people cannot, have not faced, and they've done it with joy. If uh, reading some of the apostolic fathers, the first uh, group after the apostles, you read of their uh, tribulations. You read of the ways that they have been persecuted. There is one who was captured. He was being taken to Rome, and he heard that his Christian disciples were wanting to stage a bit of a uh, breakout for him as he was traveling the road. And he pleads with them, please give me the honor to die like Christ. I know how desperately you want to save me, and, but please grant me this honor. So there's a great joy that we can face, but we also mourn. Who of his disciples would not have mourned? They would have been strengthened by his testimony and yet been deeply broken that their teacher was being killed and that all they could do is sit back pray that Jesus would come back before that happened. And so as we face hard things in our lives, the loss of loved ones, if we are found in Christ, we have such a joy. But that doesn't mean that we push aside the mourning. Sin is great. It is one of the greatest enemies that we face. Death is another great enemy that we face. And it is painful when those things happen because this is not the way it was meant to be. This is not what we were created for. And so while we have joy, we mourn because of the effects of sin. And we cry out. It should cause us to cry out for our loved ones who are still lost in sin that we know. It should cause us to cry out for Jesus to return. Lord, come quickly. Remove the sin. Remove death. Defeat Satan for good. I'm ready for the not yet period to become the now. But Lord, may I serve you with joy during this time. So we live in a time of joy, but also of mourning. And it's not helpful to push either one of those out of the way. The second point I'd like to focus on is that those who try to mix their works and Jesus' sacrifice will end up destroying both. Your good works that 
Uh, and when you are a Christian, good works should come with that. And those good works are, uh, we're told in the Bible that there are, uh, that Jesus gives rewards to those who are found faithful. But we shouldn't be working for the rewards, we should be working for Christ. Jesus is the ultimate reward. But if we are doing our good works and thinking that that's going to help save us, we're going to end up destroying Jesus' sacrifice that actually saves us in the process. And we'll be, we'll, we will remain lost. Too often, we are practical Mormons or practical Catholics. And by that I mean, in Mormonism, there's a teaching that says we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, which sounds really good, right? But then they add this little bit here that says, after all that we can do. That we do everything we can do, and then God's grace covers the rest. In Catholicism, they say that our works are a necessary contribution to our salvation not the result of us being saved by God. And that not just our works, but also the works of other saints in heaven who did above and beyond what they needed to do, those can be taken for us and applied to our account as well. That would be a reason why we would pray to the saints, so that they could give us some of their, some of their good juice to help save us. And too often, though, we may... Uh, fall into thinking that we want the good things that Jesus has to offer, but we want to be the ones who control how it happens and when it happens. On the one side, we can think, Jesus has saved me, but I'm going to work to make sure that I stay saved. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to keep my kids in church. I'm going to give money away to the poor, and I'm going to make sure that I deserve to be saved. On the other hand, we might, work, we might think that we can work to clean our lives up, while following Jesus. We say, I will fully give my life to Jesus. Right now I want to follow him, but not fully. But I'll fully give my life to Jesus once I overcome this sin. If I can overcome this social anxiety and do better in groups of people that I don't know, then I'll fully give my life to Jesus and start evangelizing people. Uh, I'm sleeping with someone who isn't my spouse, or I'm looking at pornography in private, so I'll commit to really following God once I'm married or once I'm free from this addiction. I'm pretty angry and judgmental toward people. So once I figure that out, figure out how to be better at that, then I'll give up everything to follow Christ. But right now, I still want to be able to do this anger and judgment thing a little bit as I'm figuring it out. We'll take our baby steps before we dive right in. We say, if I could be a better father or mother first, then I'll follow Christ. I want to follow Jesus, maybe, but I really like the self-medicating effect that comes from drugs or alcohol um, or any other ways that we seek to mediate our stress that comes apart from Christ. Brothers and sisters, these are excuses to remain in sin, and they're an attempt to half-heartedly follow Christ while holding tightly to your own ways. If you do that, both will be destroyed. The only option you have, true option that you have for salvation, is to give it all up. And it's going to be hard. Like, that doesn't mean we, fall in, we don't fall into sin ever again. Like, don't hear me saying that. But it does mean that I'm going to fight. It talks about killing the flesh in the scriptures. It talks about pulling our sin out into the light and exposing it so it will die. 
It doesn't talk about kind of keeping it off to the side and allowing this pet sin to carry along with me while I try to follow Jesus. It talks about destroying sin. The final point that I want us to think about and ties back into the introduction. New things for new things' sakes and old things for the old things' sake, those are not good enough reasons to change or not to change. Things changed because the living Word of God, Jesus, said that they were changing. Not because the Pharisees were the bad guys and Jesus wanted to prove them wrong. Not because Jesus was this great leadership guru teaching people how to change their church for the better. And not because Jesus' disciples were young and hip and that's who they wanted to appeal to. And the Pharisees were old and outdated. The changes that came to the people of God were changes that were necessary because God said they were necessary. Some changes are going to occur with the passing of the torch from generation to generation. That needs to happen. And that's ultimately inevitable because the world changes and we always have to be ready to respond to what the world has to ask. Each generation also has sinful blindnesses, both sinful blindnesses and the grace of God to have the scales removed from their eyes for other uh, generations' sinful blindness. We all can see the sin of other generations better while not being able to see the sin of our generation as well. And we have the grace of God to see that need for change in one another's generations, and that's a good thing. Now, that doesn't mean that the other generations are always right. But we need to be willing to hear out our brothers and sisters who come from different eras. Old Christians who truly are Christians filled with the Spirit of God have vital, Spirit-filled wisdom and pushback to pass to young Christians who are quick and desiring to change everything. Young Christians who truly are Christians and filled with the Spirit of God also have vital, Spirit-filled wisdom and pushback to pass to old Christians who want new life in the church but don't know how to do it. It's not a good sign for the church to ultimately be exclusively appealing to one small age group of people. That's a sign that decline is coming. Like you, you just can't get around that. Or it's already here. And it's a sign that we may be willing, need to be willing to hear some outside voices that are going to say some things that are going to hurt a little bit because it's about things that need to change that we've grown to love and that aren't necessarily bad things. But let me tell you something about myself really quickly. When I was in my early 20s, I was part of a church that hadn't changed except to decline for many, many decades. I tried encouraging and leading the charge for what I was convinced, and I'm still convinced to this day, are gospel changes that needed to happen. And Jesus, the changes that Jesus calls his church to make. But those ideas were shot down left and right. They wanted me to stay with the young adults and not cause problems for the church by asking for change. And we ended up leaving the church with the thought that it would take the amount of time for a specific generation to die out before that church would be ready and able to change. And by that point, it probably wouldn't be able to be saved. It would probably end up having to close its doors. 
And I left because I thought that I would have to wait decades to see gospel changes in that church. I don't ever want to do that again. I plan to never do that again. I want to see churches thrive in the light of the gospel, stubbornly holding fast to the things that are right, to all the right things, to all the important things, and humbly holding loosely everything else. The question is not whether the old or the new is better. The question is, where does Jesus say that things need to change? Change is going to happen. It must. But it's not for the sake of change. It's for the sake of course correcting and unifying to Christ's vision for his bride. We change for the sake of the gospel, not for our own preferences. Whether this is in the daily affairs of our church or in the daily affairs of our lives, change is required if we are Christians. Really, Jesus brings change. The good news itself is that we can be changed. We who were once lost in our sin are given the change of heart to make us new. We, who were once rebels to God, we can be made into his sons and daughters. This is wonderful news. This is very, very good news. We have the opportunity to be something, part of something that is beautiful and new in this church. May we all, old and young, unite around that and seek to honor one another as better than ourselves when we are looking at what to change and what to keep and to honor Christ above all. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have given us your word. Thank you that you have given us the opportunity to be here as brothers and sisters and that we may have um, different generations that we can celebrate, that we can be part of. Father, as things happen, as we grow, as we uh, are shaped as a people and as a church, God, we pray that your spirit would be within us, that you would slow down those who are maybe a little bit too excited to get everything changed, that you would give us the wisdom and patience to love one another well on both sides. God, that we may see new life brought into this church. And that not life that's built around fads, not life that's built around trying to make the church exactly what anyone in this building, especially me, thinks is the perfect church. But rather, Lord, that we would uh, change in accordance to what Christ has called us to change. And that we would keep gladly what Christ has said we can keep. Lord, you are so good. Help us to love you above all else, above our comforts. And God, help us to be a people who seek the good of everyone else around us more. May we be a people who 
when we hear that someone else who is a brother or sister loves something specific that we don't really like, that we start fighting for that to be in, this, uh, in our gathering. Uh, maybe specific songs that one side doesn't like and the other one does. That even if we dislike it, that we start fighting to hear things that will bless others in this church. We love you, Lord, so much. Help us to turn away from those times that we are selfishly uh, sinful. And Lord, may we be selfless in the ways that we treat one another. Lord, grant wisdom to the young. Grant uh, patience and willingness to learn and to teach to all of us. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.